0: Well, good morning. Welcome back. Go ahead and have a seat as we uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for your uh, faithfulness, Um, grateful for an opportunity for us to gather, even as um, uh, we did sustain some damage that uh, we didn't sustain it to uh, the sanctuary. And so we're able to uh, gather together to hear your word and to sing and to uh, to pray and to do all of these things, and so I uh, pray that you would continue to, uh, uh, to manifest your grace and goodness in our lives and help us to love and trust your Son. I'm grateful for an opportunity for us uh, this morning to, uh, to dive into uh, your Word, and uh, in particular in theological equipping, just to uh, consider um, the person of your Son, and, uh, and so I pray that you would bless this time. We ask it because you're a good Father and you give good gifts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thanks for coming to Theological Equipping class where all year we have been talking about uh, church history. And a few weeks ago... We talked about some of the early church heresies that uh, developed in the first few centuries of the church. Uh, and then over the past two weeks, we've seen the church's response to these Trinitarian heresies uh, in the form of an ecumenical council uh, at a place called Nicaea. And then one of the leading proponents of, uh, of Orthodox Trinitarianism, uh, the church father Athanasius. And so today, we want to turn our attention back to heresies, in particular those heresies uh, that were uh, kind of regarding a distortion. of uh, of Jesus Christ himself. But first, uh, a a recap. When I say heresy, we talked about this a few weeks ago, when I say heresy, don't think of any wrong doctrine in general. For instance, Presbyterians believe that uh, Baptists are wrong on infant uh, baptism and uh, vice versa, but that isn't Heresy. Christians disagree on a lot of things that isn't a question of heresy. Christians don't disagree on heresy because heresy by its very defini- definition is something that is unchristian. It's a distortion of a first order doctrine. It's a belief that compromises the nature of the gospel itself or the nature uh, of God himself and the meaning of the gospel. And all uh, heresies have one thing, at least one thing in common. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that all heresies are are trying to make God more relatable, more more palatable, uh, more easily comprehended. And they go about that by doing what we uh, called minimizing the mystery. In fact, we, we read, read a defini- definition of heresy by Alistair McGrath where he said that heresy is a doctrine that ultimately destroys, destabilizes, or distorts a mystery rather than preserving it. And so we talked about the fact that, uh, that we cannot know God fully all right? and, and so God is beyond our comprehension, although we can know him rightly, we cannot know him fully. And so there's always going to be a degree of mystery in our understanding of God. There's always going to be a, a degree of mystery uh, in our theology. But what heresy does is it seeks to minimize that mystery. It seeks to reduce uh, certain Uh, This tension that we might feel as we are uh, coming to the scripture and trying to assess all of the biblical data. It's going to stress some data to the exclusion of other data. For for instance, uh, there's mystery in regards to the Trinity. How can there be unity and also diversity? How can there be plurality and also equality in the Godhead? But when it comes to Trinitarian heresies, what the heretic is going to do is it's going to either deny the unity of God or the equality of the three persons, while others are going to neglect the plurality or the diversity in the Godhead. They don't like that sense of paradox, and so they seek to sacrifice one truth by holding on to the other, rather than simply clinging to both of these truths at the same time. And so we'll see that same tendency toward minimizing the mystery uh, this morning with these Christological heresies uh, that, that, uh, that will implicitly deny the deity of Christ on one hand or others will deny the humanity of Christ. That's what we're going to see uh, rather than, uh, than embracing all of the biblical data uh, these heresies are going to seek to minimize that, to, to seek the, to take the pressure off, to remove the paradox, to remove uh, the tension. And what we should do as Christians is rather than seeking to take that tension off, rather than seeking to minimize the mystery, we should actually embrace it. We don't have to deny the plurality of God in order to believe that there is only one God. Likewise, we don't have to deny the deity of Christ to confess the humanity of Christ or vice versa. I've used this analogy before, but whenever I was a kid, I was uh, maybe four or or five years old and I was playing tug of war on this piece of uh, uh, playground equipment and uh, and I'm playing with a friend of mine and uh, all of a sudden she lets go uh, of the other end of this uh, blanket or whatever it is we were playing tug of war with. And so I fell off the playground uh, equipment and, uh, and landed right on my head. I suffered a con- uh, concussion, was in the hospital for a couple of days. Well, that's kind of the imagery of what happens when someone lets go in a tug of war. And that's kind of what happens with heresy. When it comes to much of the Bible, there is this intentional tension that we should feel. God is one and God is three. Now, we mean something different by God's threeness than we do by his oneness, and that's encapsulated in the doctrine of the Trinity, that there's unity and there's equality and there's diversity, there's plurality, and there is mystery. That's the Trinity. But when someone lets go of the threeness and just holds on to the oneness, or someone lets go of the oneness and just holds on to the threeness, that's heresy, all right. And, uh, and so the, the same thing is true when it comes to Christological heresies that we'll talk about today. The, de- the deity and humanity of Christ aren't on this sort of spectrum such that if you uh, move closer to one, you move away from the other. It's not like the more that you believe that Jesus is divine, the less you have to believe that he's human. No, he is both of those things simultaneously. But heretics want to minimize that mystery. They want to make God. Or they want to make Christ, or they want to make the gospel more palatable, more relatable, more easily comprehended. So, uh, so pay attention to that sort of uh, tension as we uh, as we go along. And so, this far in our uh, journey. Uh, Over the past few weeks, we've seen that in the first two centuries of the church, the main heresies that the church is going to have to uh, combat are legalism. You see that even in the scriptures with uh, things like the Judaizers who are insisting that there must be uh, adherence to the Mosaic law. And there's also going to be dualisms. We talked about those like docetism or Gnosticism or Marcionism, all of those that arise out of this Platonic uh, Greek philosophy that suggests that the material or the, the physical world is evil or bad while the good world is that which is uh, just immaterial or spiritual. So that's the first two centuries of the church. Those were the main heresies. Over the the next two centuries uh, of the church, the, uh, the third and fourth centuries, the main heresies that the church has to combat are Trinitarian heresies, like modalism or adoptionism or Arianism that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And those views were repudiated in the first two ecumenical councils, uh, at Nicaea in 325, and then Constantinople in 381. And so those councils are going to be opportunities for the church to clarify that the Son and also the Spirit uh, had to be just as truly and equally God as the Father in order for salvation to be entirely of God. If the Son or if the Spirit aren't actually God, then it isn't actually God who saves us. And that's a pretty big Deal because if God doesn't save us, then we're not saved. So, having established these pretty defined boundaries for Trinitarian orthodoxy at Nicaea and then Constantinople, the conversation, the concern in the early church turns over the next couple of centuries to Christological heresies. And so, in general, in the fifth and sixth century, that's kind of what the church is more going to be focused on. In particular, they're going to be asking this question how do we understand the union of the deity? and the humanity of Christ. Is he human or is he divine? Is he neither, is he both? And then what do we mean by asking those questions? And that was what the church was uh, trying to figure out uh, in, uh, in this period of, uh, of history. And as often is the case, there were a lot of really bad answers to those questions. We'll talk about five of those today. Five unhelpful, unfaithful ways to understand the relationship between the deity and the humanity of Christ, Those five are Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, Eutychianism, Monophysitism, and Monothelitism. Those are scary sounding words. They're not scary. We'll understand all of them here in a second. But before we get to these actual views, these five heresies, it's helpful to understand something of the context and then why this is important. Why are we spending so much time talking about heresies? In particular, there are two noteworthy historical developments that are, that are gonna be helpful for you to understand kind of the way that uh, this is developing in the early church. The first is that there is this bit of political jockeying uh, for uh, preeminence in, uh, in the early church, in particular in the eastern part of the, uh, of the church. In the west, uh, everyone is kind of already uh, resigned to the fact that Rome is obviously the most influential church. Uh, but in the east, there is this debate Certainly Jerusalem was historically significant, but ever since it had uh, fallen in 70 AD, it lost some of its uh, prestige. So the debate really would rotate around these three different cities, all of them kind of jockeying for position uh, in the early church. You have Constantinople, which will be uh, after uh, Constantine uh, locates the, uh, the capital there. Then you have Alexandria, which historically is very significant. Uh, and then you also have Antioch. Antioch is a, a biblically significant uh, city where uh, most of the early mission work of the uh, early church uh, happened. So this will be significant because we'll see a lot of these clashes between the bishops of these various cities as they attempt to assert some degree of primacy over each other. So, Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch are kind of going to be battling. Uh, in other words, there's this bit of bad blood uh, between these various cities, kind of like the Bloods and the Crips or Katy Perry and Taylor Swift or something like that. So, you have Alexandria. And you have Antioch, and then you have Constantinople. And speaking of Alexandria and Antioch in particular, uh, the other significant contextual reality that you should know is that these uh, two cities provided these kind of unique emphases uh, in the coming Christological debates. Both of these cities are going to confess, in to, to some degree, in some sense, that Jesus is both human and divine, but each kind of approach that with a different emphasis or a different emphasis. In particular, the Alexandrian school focused more on Christ's divinity while the Antiochian school emphasized his humanity. You can remember that, by the way, if you just remember that in the word Antioch, there's an H for humanity, and then in the word Alexandria, there's a D for uh, deity. And the problem wasn't that they just simply emphasized one or the other, but rather that some would then emphasize one in a way that neglected the other. This was particularly a struggle in Antioch. When Antioch was going to uh, press for Jesus being human, often they would do so at the expense of the deity. Remember what we said. It's not a spectrum. The more divine he is, the less human he is. That's not how the hypostatic union works. By the way, works. By the way, the word hypostatic union. Hypostatic is the word in nature. Hypostasis in Greek, and then union. The union of Christ. Nature. So, what? Uh, so, there was this ongoing struggle between Antioch and Alexandria uh, to clarify what was meant by the deity and humanity of Christ, and what it means for the Son of God to become man. What does it mean, for example, when Scripture says the Word became flesh? All right. Now, why does this matter? Have you ever been in the uh, the middle of a debate with uh, maybe friends or whatever it might be, and it just seemed absolutely irrelevant, absolutely unnecessary? Like two guys on Twitter that are battling it out over whether you know James Bond or Jason Bourne would win a fight, or uh, which Star Wars prequel was most in keeping of George Lucas's original vision, or something like that. I don't know if you've ever experienced some sort of a debate where you just thought this is completely insignificant, this doesn't matter at all. And on the surface, you might feel that. Whenever we're talking about these Christological heresies, does it really matter how we think of the hypostatic union? And the answer is yes. It does. We've talked about this over the past few weeks in discussing Trinitarianism and Trinitarian uh, heresies. It makes all the difference in the world if Jesus is God, which is what uh, the church has confessed, or if he's merely like God, which is what a guy like Arius would confess. Likewise, with the question of whether Jesus was truly human or if he's merely like uh, like human, that's a very big difference. And it's a very significant difference. When it comes to Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy, here's the concern. Does God actually save man? In order to do so, God must become man. So if Jesus isn't God or Jesus isn't man, that doesn't happen. You aren't saved. So when it comes to Trinitarian heresies, we established a couple of weeks ago that it's truly God who comes down to us. That Jesus, the son of God, is truly God. He's not just like God, homoousias, as Arius would say, he is uh, homoousias, I just said a heresy, he is homoousias, he is actually God, he's of the same nature of God. But today, we'll address the question, we know that it's God who comes down to us, we'll address the question of how far down does he come? Does the Son of God actually incarnate? Does he actually unite himself to humanity, or does he just come part of the way down? Is he only partly human? And if so, then we're only partly saved. So this isn't just some sort of exercise and irrelevant trivia so that you can learn uh, about uh, these guys, Apollinarius and Nestorius and Eutyches, and impress your friends or something like that. No, eternal life actually hangs in the balance. If Jesus is not fully God or fully man, then we're not fully saved. And that's a big deal. So with that significance in mind, Let's dive in to see how some of these guys distorted the biblical data regarding what it means that the word became flesh. And so the first guy to kind of scream Leroy Jenkins and run into the room with guns blazing to settle this dispute about the deity and humanity of Christ was a guy named Apollinaris of Laodicea in the 360s and 370s. Apollinaris, he's also sometimes called Apollinarius. You can call him either one. He was a friend of Athanasius. Athanasius was a very good guy. We talked about him uh, last week in particular. Uh, and Athanasius was this champion of, uh, of Trinitarian theology. And so Apollinarius was a friend of Athanasius. Um, and, uh, but Apollinarius' views on Christology uh, would eventually drive a, a wedge in their friendship. Apollinarius believed, that in order to be human, you simply had to be an enfleshed spirit. You had to be a spirit in a body. That was really all that mattered. That was the, a, a sufficient condition for humanity. By definition, according to Apollinarius, if you possess both materiality, a body, and immateriality, a spirit or a soul, then you're human. That's all that matters. So angels fail this test because they're spirit, but they're not body, Right? Dogs fail this test because they are body but no spirit. Cats fail this test because they're demons, right? So as we'll see, the church said that while it's true that humans have both bodies and souls, that's not all that's necessary for humanity. It's a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition. But for Apollinarius, all that matters for Jesus to be human is that he possesses both a body and And some sort of spirit, some sort of soul, some sort of immaterial existence as well. So Apollinaris just thought that the immaterial logos, the word, the immaterial uh, soul was simply clothed with physicality. In other words, when John writes, the word became flesh, flesh doesn't mean human, flesh doesn't mean man, it just means body. So Christ possessed a human body, but not a human mind, or human soul, or human emotions, or human will, or any of those kinds of things, uh, as it would be called in Greek, not a, quote, rational soul. So you see an illustration of that here. It's just simply the human body and the divine nature are joined together, and that, for Apollinarius, is, uh, is kind of the thing. You see the image there? It's kind of like a mutated Pac-Man or like one of those necklaces that you have with your best friend and it splits apart or something. So notice the implication, right? Christ is not fully human. He simply takes on the material aspects of humanity. Anyone seen uh, Men in Black, Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones? Right, a few of you. For most of the movie, the main villain is uh, is this alien and this alien comes down and he kills a man and then he steals his skin. And he just kind of goes around for the rest of the movie in this uh, man's skin. He kind of looks and kind of sounds human, but it's not a human. It's really just an alien in a big man suit. And that's Apollinarianism. The, the man Jesus isn't really fully human. He's just God in a big skin suit. That's kind of Apollinarianism. So uh, what drives Apollinaris. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Trinitarian heresies, that heretics aren't trying to destroy the church. In fact, they're often trying to help the church. But they help in the same way that your infant helps you to change his dirty diaper. It just makes things a lot worse. And so Apollinaris is not trying to deceive, he's trying to help. But he's helping out of fear. In particular, he's afraid that if we confess that Christ is truly and fully human with a human mind and a human soul and a human spirit and human emotions and, and all of that, that it will somehow compromise or taint uh, the, uh, the son of God. Why? Because for him, he has this conception of humanity being weak. His line of thought is if you're fully human, then you're sinful. So Jesus can't be human. When I, was in, uh, when I was in seminary, one of my favorite professors asked the class to just shout out words that describe humanity. So as we would shout something out, he would then write it on, uh, on the whiteboard. And by the end, most of the words that uh, he had written there, most of the things that we had uh, shouted out were things like sinful or depraved or unrighteous or something like that. So after this dramatic pause where my professor is looking over these words, uh, after this dramatic pause, the the professor looked at us and and he asked, if this is what it really means to be human, are you saying that Jesus was sinful and depraved and unrighteous and all these other words written on the board? Or, Or are you saying that Jesus was not truly human? Which one is it? And it was this powerful rhetorical point to help clarify that when we talk about humanity, Now, we typically are talking not about original human nature, but rather fallen humanity in particular. For Apollinarius, humanity was the problem. Biblically, though, that isn't the case. The problem isn't humanity in general. The problem is fallen humanity in particular. After all, we will live forever as humans, right? Whenever we die, whenever we're resurrected, we don't just simply live in heaven as disembodied spirits. We don't become angels or something like that and float around playing uh, harps, wearing diapers or something. We are actual humans forever. And so the problem is not humanity, the problem is fallen humanity. And so Apollinarius, though, didn't believe that humanity and deity are compatible in the God-man the very thing that our doctrine of creation and incarnation and resurrection are to proclaim, that there is this opportunity for those things to be compatible. So what's the big deal? Why does it matter if Jesus had a human soul or not? What does it matter if he was just simply a divine soul in a human body? What well, matters because if Jesus was only half human, then we're only half saved. Here's a helpful phrase for you to remember, and this will come up over and over as we talk about these Christological heresies. He only redeems what he assumes. He only redeems what he assumes. In all of these Christological heresies, this will be important. The son only res- redeems what he assumes. So the early church father, Gregory of Naz- uh, Nazianzus, responded to Apollinarius by writing this. If any believe in Jesus Christ as a human being without human reason, without a soul, without a mind, without a human mind. If anyone believe in Jesus Christ as a human being without human reason, they are the ones devoid of reason. Mic drop, I love that. And unworthy of salvation, for that which he has not taken up, he is not saved. Notice that phrase, that which he has not taken up, he is not saved. In other words, he only redeems what he assumes, or it could also be translated as the unassumed is unhealed. He saved that which is joined to his divinity. If only half of Adam had fallen, then it would be possible for Christ to only take up half uh, and save only half. But if the entire human nature fell, all of it must be united to the word in order to be saved as a whole. Let them not grudge us our total salvation or endue the Savior only with the bones and nerves and mere appearance of humanity. So in Apollinarianism, Jesus is fully God, Pollinarius would uh, stress that. Again, he's a friend of Athanasius. He believes in Nicene uh, uh, Trinitarian theology. So Jesus is fully God according to Apollinarianism. That's not the problem, but he isn't truly human. And therein lies the problem because if he isn't truly human, then we aren't truly saved. And the early church recognized this problem as, uh, as Apollinarianism was officially condemned by the Council of Constantinople in 381. And then Apollinarius died the next year, in 382. The next episode of Christological controversies is birthed out of uh, out of a response to Apollinarianism uh, by three guys influenced by the tradition of Antioch. Remember, Antioch is more uh, going to be uh, stressing the humanity of Christ. And those three guys are Diodor, the bishop of Tarsus; Theodore, the bishop of uh, Mopsuestia; and then Nestorius. Uh, who lived from about 386 to 450, who became the archbishop of Constantinople in 428 and whose name has been forever linked with the heresy known as Nestorianism. And these three guys hated Apollinarianism. They thought it was a catastrophic error that demanded a complete rethinking of the incarnation. And they did so, they rethought the incarnation by dividing the two natures of Jesus, his deity and his humanity, Dividing those two natures into two distinct persons and then asking this question, to whom do we, uh, should we describe the different events in, in Christ's life? For example, when Jesus grew tired, Nestorianism says, well, that was just human Jesus. And when Jesus forgave sins, then well, then that was divine Jesus. But there's two different Jesuses. They're two different persons. In other words, they divided the two natures of Christ and all unity... The hypostatic union, all unity was sacrificed for the sake of preserving the distinctions of each nature. So you see there that illustration, you have the human person and then you have the divine person. So there's two separate persons, one divine and the other human, rather than what we'll see in Chalcedonian theology, which is that uh, uh, Christ is one person with two natures. Nestorianism says he's two persons with two natures. You have the human nature and the human person, and you have the divine nature and and the divine person. So in Jesus Christ, there is complete deity and complete humanity, unlike in Apollinarianism, but there's this huge line of demarcation between the two. There's no uh, union between them. Here's an analogy that might help a little bit. When we talk of the spirit-indwelling believers, we recognize we're talking about two persons there. When the spirit takes up residence in us, we don't become God There's a distinction between the the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells in Ted, for instance, and Ted himself. Those are two different persons. The Spirit dwells in Ted, but the Spirit and Ted are two different peoples, and that's kind of what Nestorianism does. It says that Jesus was kind of like that except to a greater degree. The divine Son of God simply dwelled within the human person, but they were distinct and separate persons. Now there's also this interesting conversation that takes place uh, regarding uh, the, uh, the identity of Mary as, uh, as being theotokos. Theotokos, the mother of God, which is a phrase used in the Council of Ephesus in 431. And so to to really understand the significance of this and why this is going to be a big deal, you need to uh, take out of your mind, if I say the phrase, Mary is the mother of God, and that causes you to pause, if that causes any uh, discomfort in you, uh, then you need to kind of remove from your mind the later Roman Catholic tradition of venerating Mary. That was not the case at this point in history. It doesn't really fully develop until the Middle Ages and uh, later. In fact, in the early church, the title of Theotokos wasn't really uh, concerned at all with the identity of Mary, but rather with the identity of the child in her womb. So mother of God, Theotokos, isn't intended in any sense to venerate Mary, but rather to talk about Jesus, to say that the child in her womb was God, what the, what the church meant by Theotokos was simply the child in Mary's womb was God. He wasn't merely human and he later became God. The child was the son of God from conception. So Theotokos became a way of distinguishing those who held that Christ was divine from birth from those who held that later he kind of became divine. But Nestorius didn't like the term Theotokos. Why not? Well, remember, he wanted to distinguish what the human Jesus did from what the divine Jesus did. Those are two different persons. So when Jesus is born, according to Nestorius, that's human Jesus. That's not divine Jesus. So Theotokos wouldn't work. So he suggested Christotokos instead, that, uh, that Mary is just simply the uh, mother of Christ, but not the mother of God. Um, and so she bore the human Jesus, and then that human Jesus, sometime later, became a vessel that housed God, in which God dwelled. He said, Nestorius, he said, Mary wasn't strictly speaking the, the bearer of God. So the church responded and said, if Mary isn't strictly speaking the mother of God, then her son isn't strictly speaking God. And that's a huge problem. So again, the church recognized Nestorius's nuance actually drives this wedge between the two persons. So Theotokos became this litmus test in the early church, a a shibboleth for orthodoxy. Uh, So if someone asks you, if you think that Mary uh, is Theotokos, you should say yes, because she doesn't, uh, that doesn't have anything to do with later uh, Roman uh, Catholic developments like perpetual virginity or immaculate conception or the assumption of Mary or something like that. So what was it that drove Nestorius? What was it that he and other Nestorians were afraid of? Why were they seeking to minimize the mystery? Well, they were afraid that if we speak of the deity and the humanity as being joined in one person, that the deity would kind of overwhelm the humanity and we would lose sight of the true humanity. Remember, they're all influenced by the school of Antioch and whatever they do, they don't wanna give up the uh, humanity of Christ. And so here's kind of an analogy. They thought if we confess that he is both, uh, he has a human nature and a divine nature in one person, then the divine nature is going to overwhelm the human nature. So here's an analogy of that. A few years back, I was uh, having dinner at a nice steakhouse with my in-laws and, uh, and my, uh, my father-in-law had ordered some wine and it's a few steps up from my uh, normal budget. So I'm kind of savoring it. And I order a glass of, uh, of tea on the side. And so when the tea came, I was caught up in a conversation. I wasn't paying attention. And, and so I grabbed a, a packet of Splenda and I poured it in the glass. But it was accident, accidentally the glass of wine and not the glass of tea. Now, you might be thinking, wine is kind of bitter, so maybe it tasted better. The answer is it did not. It did not taste better. It just tastes like really bad Kool-Aid, all right? But that's kind of what Nestorius imagined would happen if you confess the two natures in one person. The divine nature would kind of overwhelm and overpower the human nature, and then the humanity would be ruined. Bear in mind, all of these guys are, again, are influenced by the Antioch uh, tradition, which is more concerned with preserving the humanity of Christ. For the Nestorians to suggest that Christ was only one person would necessarily entail a reduction in the humanity of Christ. So they drove a wedge between the two natures and created two persons. Now given that this is kind of being influenced and coming out of Antioch, guess where the strongest rebuke came? From where the strongest rebuke came? Antioch, what's the other city? Alexandria, right? In particular a guy named Cyril of or Cyril of Alexandria. And he was concerned that this would compromise the gospel in a fundamental way. Right? He he saw beyond what was happening and he said this is actually going to have some huge problems. Namely, it would divide the human Jesus from the divine son and suggest that it was only the human Jesus who died. Because divinity can't die. And so if there's two persons, the person who dies is just the human Jesus. The divine Jesus doesn't die, which means that is a huge problem because that means that the sacrifice isn't actually of infinite value. So his response, Cyril of Alexandria, was that only one who is the son of God by nature can make us sons of God by adoption or grace. And interestingly enough, uh, though the Nestorians were all Nicene in that they hated Arianism, The church viewed Nestorianism as being almost as dangerous as Arianism. Why? Because they thought it actually ended up leading, ironically, to the same place. You have someone who is less than fully God dying for our sins. Thus, you have a gospel in which a creature is reaching up to the creator rather than the creator reaching down to man. In other words, in Nestorianism, you don't have God becoming man Remember, in these Christological controversies, we're seeking to understand what it means that the word became flesh. But in Nestorianism, you don't have God becoming man, you simply have God coming alongside a man. As uh, Kevin DeYoung says, Nestorianism ends up making too little of Jesus and too much of us, too much of man. Now, the church's historical response to Nestorianism is really complicated. It involves multiple councils and counter councils, all of those kinds of things. We'll actually talk about that next week. But Nestorius was deposed at the third ecumenical council at Ephesus in 431 and spent the rest of his life in exile, dying in 450, only one year before his views were formally condemned at the fourth council of Chalcedon, uh, or Chalcedon in uh, 451. Uh, a side note, uh, though Nestorianism was condemned, a few bishops uh, formally split from the church and formed what is today called the Assyrian Church of the East or the Nestorian Church. And so there are actual churches today that would uh, adhere to this Nestorian view of Jesus. They affirm the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople, the first two ecumenical councils, but then they reject everything subsequent to that. Now, an interesting result of this conflict over Nestorianism was this temporary truce between Antioch and Alexandria, but that soon comes to an end with the events surrounding Eutychianism, which was named after a guy named Eutyches uh, from about 380 to 486. Eutychius was this monastic leader in Constantinople. You ever met someone who got really cranky when they got older? That was Eutychius. He got old, he just didn't care about things like nuance or tact or whatever. And that's not always a bad thing, right? The prophets, even Jesus, are pretty blunt at times. But it's bad when you're not only harsh, but also wrong, all right? Harshness isn't always wrong, but heresy is. And Eutychius was wrong. And Eutychius hated Nestorianism. That part's good. But his solution wasn't much better. Whereas Nestorianism promoted two persons and two natures, Yutiki swung the pendulum the other way. He said, not only are there not two persons, there aren't even two natures. Instead, the divine and human natures merge to form this new nature. So Utiki said, I confess that our Lord was of two natures before the union, but after the union, sometime there is this merging and uh, Jesus becomes one nature, Think about it like this, rather than dividing the two natures like Nestorianism, Eutychianism confuses or mixes together the natures. Kind of like that wine illustration that I used earlier, it would also work for Eutychianism. All right, so he taught that the word became man and then at some point became something else entirely. This confluence of, uh, of the two natures. It's kind of like when you mix a really strong acid with a really strong base you just get this neutral substance which is neither uh, properly basic or acidic. Or, or when you mix yellow and blue and you get green. Or, uh, or if you, uh, you take a male donkey and you, uh, a female horse and you get a mule. It's neither a donkey nor a horse. That's kind of what Eutychianism is. Eutychians thought that the sun became fully human. But then the human and the divine merged into this third entity. Which, and this is really crucial, isn't properly God or man. That's a crucial distinction. So you see an illustration there. You have the human nature, the divine nature. They merge together to form this new nature. Now, as with Nestorianism, there's this rich, complicated response of the church having to do with linguistic distinctions, political alliances that we'll uh, just talk about next week. But uh, this view was formally condemned by the language of the Fourth Ecumenical Council at Chalcedon in 451 which as we'll see next week doesn't really define exactly how the hypostatic union works, the the union of of, uh, Christ's hypostases or natures, but it defines the borders, the boundaries beyond which we mustn't trespass. In other words, it it, it elucidates, it highlights the mystery, but it doesn't minimize it. So let's recap. Uh, We've looked at three views of the hypostatic union thus far. Apollinarianism, which said that Jesus had a human body, and a divine soul. Nestorianism, which said uh, that Jesus was two persons and two natures, human Jesus versus divine Jesus. Eutychianism, Christ possessed one nature that was a mixture of human and divine, but couldn't properly be called either. He's kind of like us and he's kind of like God, but he's not truly like us or like God. And then these next two heresies that we'll look at are just slight alterations of a couple of the above. The first one is monophysitism. The view that is associated with Eutyches that we just talked about is also called monophysitism. Monos uh, means one, physis means nature. Remember that according to Eutyches, yellow and blue make green. Deity and humanity make a semi-man, semi-god, but not all monophysites were Eutychian. Many of them were actually Armenian, not uh, Armenian, not Armenian. That's a group that we'll talk about in a few months that concerns the question of free will, but Armenian, as in from Armenia, the, the region between the Persian and Roman empires. Right around the time that the Council of Chalcedon was meeting to hammer out the hypostatic union, the Armenians, this, uh, this, this ethnic group there, were being attacked by the Persians to their east. So the Armenians plead for help. From the Christians in the West, unfortunately, that uh, that help never came. So the Armenians got bad, they got mad. Now, why didn't the help come? Because the Romans were meeting at Chalcedon. So the Armenians responded by rejecting Chalcedon. That was the kind of the opportunity for help not to come for them. So they just simply rejected that entire council. That's kind of an oversimplified uh, version of the events. But the result was that there one group that rejected Chalcedon and clung to this monophistic uh, Christology in which Christ has only one nature. Most of them, though, actually reject the label of monophysite because they deny Eutychianism. So they reject Chalcedon, uh, Chalcedon for a host of factors, some theological, others political and semantic. For example, there's at least an argument to be made that they're using the word physis not to refer to one nature, but to one person, due to the flexibility of Greek to refer to one or the other. But these churches are sometimes called the Oriental Orthodox churches as opposed to the Eastern Orthodox churches. They're called Orthodox, but they actually don't embrace the later ecumenical councils and they have a completely different hierarchy than the Eastern Orthodox churches and they're not in formal communion with Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism or Protestantism. So bottom line, monophysitism is a heresy. It denies that Christ has two natures, It mingles or confuses the deity and humanity, and its clearest uh, expression is eutychianism, but there are other forms of monophysitism as well. And the one, uh, the last view to discuss is called monothelitism. Again, monos meaning one, and then thelema meaning will. And it was promoted by a guy named Sergius I. Patriarch of Constantinople from about 610 to 638. And as the name suggests, this view promoted the idea that Jesus didn't possess two different wills, a human will and a divine will, but rather one will. Now, obviously, you might be able to notice this is just the same error as Apollinarianism. If Christ didn't possess a human will, then neither did he save the human will. He only redeems what he assumes, right? So in monothelitism, like in Apollinarianism, Christ descends, but not far enough. And thus we're not actually fully saved. We're partially saved, but there's still some aspect of our being that remains perpetually unreconciled. Our spirit, our soul, our mind, our will, whatever it might be. And that's a huge problem. And as we've seen before, the church recognized that's a problem, that's a threat. And the main opponent was a guy named Maximus the Confessor from 580 to 662, Maximus recognized the danger of monothelitism, and he helped clarify that when we talk about the will, we're talking about an attribute of the nature and not the person. That might sound confusing, but it's really helpful to understand. When we talk about the Godhead, we talk about one nature, one essence. There's only one God, but that one God eternally exists as three persons. So then we ask the question, does God have one will, Or does he have three? Is will a reflection of the nature, the oneness of God, or is will a reflection of the persons and the threeness of God? And the church has responded and said, no, that, that the will is a reflection of the nature, the oneness of God. So God only has one will. That one will is an expression of the divine nature and not of the individual persons of the Trinity. It isn't like the Father wants to save us and the spirit is like, no, let's go shopping instead, all right? There's not different wills in God. Well, if this is true, then we, we can take that same line of thinking and apply it to Christology. Jesus is one person with two natures. So does the will belong to the person or to the natures? The answer is to the nature. Jesus has two wills thus, uh, therefore, because Jesus has two natures human and divine, which makes sense whenever you're reading things like the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus saying, not my will, but thine. That isn't a reflection of his divine will. It's not the will of the son submitting to the will of the father. It's the, his human will in submission to the divine will. So again, monothelitism locates the will in the, uh, in the person and thus says that Jesus is only will, one will rather than two as uh, Chalcedon and the rest of the church has suggested. Thankfully, Maximus's views won out. Monothelitism was condemned at the Sixth Ecumenical Council at Constantinople in 680 to 681. As an aside, one of the, uh, I think, helpful nuances that Maximus and others brought out is that when we talk about the human will of Jesus, we're not talking about the fallen will that sinful humanity experiences. Christ was tempted like Adam was tempted, but he was tempted like Adam was tempted in the garden before sin. It was an external temptation, whereas the temptation that you and I face is not just external temptation, but also internal temptation, right? As James says, each person is lured and enticed by what? Anybody remember? By his own desire. Your, uh, your temptation is internal in addition to external That is not the way Jesus experienced uh, temptation. He didn't have any internal sinful desires. And this is really important because it, it relates to this contemporary discussion of the sinfulness of desires. You have some Christians arguing that desires themselves can't be sinful since Jesus was tempted. They say that this must mean that Jesus at least desired sin but simply resisted that desire. That's particularly, particularly the argument that many make in the LGBTQ conversation, uh, and even those who would say that uh, they are, quote, gay Christians. What they're doing is equivocating on the nature of the will. Yes, Jesus was tempted, but he was not tempted by internal desires, but externally. Historically, the church has held that not only sinful actions, but even desires for sin are themselves sinful as well. Augustine called this concupiscence. The Puritans talked about inordinance inordinate desires, okay. So that's five unhelpful, unfaithful views of Christology, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, Eutychianism, monophysitism, which is a form of Eutychianism, and then monothelitism, which is uh, related to Apollinarianism. So maybe you, at this point, are kind of regretting that you came this morning. You hate math. (laughs) Just feels like a lot of numbers, right? God is three persons, but he's one being. If you say that he's three gods, that's wrong. If you say that he's one person, that's wrong. Likewise, Jesus is one person with two natures and thus two wills. If you say that he's two persons or if you say that he's one nature or if you say that he's one will, that's wrong. But this isn't just splitting hairs. Hopefully you see by now this isn't just semantics. These distinctions actually matter. I want you to think for a second about the parable that Jesus tells of the treasure hidden in a field. All right, so imagine, if you will, you're walking in this field one day, you stumble upon this huge diamond, or this, this, this huge chunk of gold, whatever it is. So you sell everything and buy that field. I don't know why you don't just grab the thing and take it, but you sell everything, we'll let his parable stand. And, uh, and you buy that field and you take that precious stone to a jeweler and the jeweler says, this is iron pyrite. This is uh, cubic zirconium or whatever. It looks so similar to the real thing and yet what's the result? You're bankrupt. You have nothing. That's what each of these views ultimately lead to. These, uh, these, uh, the Jesuses that you see in Apollinarianism and Nestorianism and Eutychianism, they look an awful lot like the biblical picture of Jesus. That's why they're so convincing. But they're doppelgangers. They're not the biblical Jesus. And the problem is, because they're not the biblical Jesus, they can't do what the biblical Jesus does, and that's really important. It isn't like you go shopping uh, for a Prada purse and you end up with a knockoff Prado or something like that. It does everything that a Prada does. It's more like you're hungry. And so y- y- you go out and you find this fish, but it turns out it's one of those, what are those called? Billy Big Mouth or whatever it is, right? It sings and it dances or so, but it doesn't do anything for your hunger whatsoever. That's what these things are, the, the depictions of Jesus promoted by the heretics aren't these harmless knockoffs, they're devastating counterfeits. You see, unless Jesus is truly God and truly human, not just like God, not just like man, not just sort of God, sort of man, not just some Superman or Thor character, but actually and truly God and actually and truly human, unless that's true, you're not actually and truly saved. So I want to wrap up with these two quotes from church history, which explain why this is so essential. The first was from Cyril of Jerusalem, for if the incarnation was a phantasm, so too is salvation a phantasm. Or Anselm of uh, Canterbury in the 11th century says, it is necessary that the self-same person who is to make this satisfaction for sin, be perfect God and perfect man, since he cannot make it unless he be really God, and he ought not make it unless he be really man. In other words, if we lose the hypostatic union, then we lose atonement and redemption and reconciliation and also incarnation and resurrection, since the sacrifice would not have been sufficient, and thus we lose our very hope. It's like pulling a string that eventually unravels the entire outfit. That's a thread you can't afford to pull. But thankfully, we don't have to. Rather, we can follow the wisdom of the church and confess that Christ is truly God and truly man. And next week, we'll see a bit more how this was articulated in the various councils and creeds of the early church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your grace and mercy to us. I thank you for the grace that you give us in uh, the traditions of the church, that men that are much more brilliant than us, probably much more godly than us, much more learned than us, have already thought through these things and so we can follow in their paths. We can follow in their footsteps. Yes, the, the uh, views of uh, a tradition are not as authoritative as your word. Your word alone is our ultimate authority. And yet we look for uh, the, uh, we look for help from the past. We stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. And so we're grateful for that opportunity. Pray that you would help us to continue to clarify our thinking about your son, not just so that we would be able to pass some sort of a theological test, but rather so that we might worship, so that we might relish your goodness to us, that you in the person of your son became man. So we're grateful for these things and pray in Christ's name, amen.